0: Well, welcome. We are in week one of our Easter series called Famous Last Words. Uh, these are the words of, of Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. And as we start out today, I thought we would do something a little bit interactive, all right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question and raise your hand, if, you know. Um, how many of you think that men can sometimes do stupid things, all right? All right, I mean, I mean, it's amazing how many hands they are up. I'm surprised there's a few hands that aren't up. A couple of the women have both hands up, and a couple men's hands are up as well. That is is awesome. Some things that men do, whether in, in, in the name of, of fun, of, of entertainment, of adventure, or sometimes even the name of fixing things, some of the things we do are just stupid. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we get hurt badly. And, and so sometimes before that happens, we call those famous last words. So I was thinking I'm going to write down some of the famous last words that I've heard men say on uh, behalf of some of these things that they've done. Like maybe, maybe you knew this guy. Maybe you knew this guy who said, I've never tried this with a chainsaw before, but what could go wrong? Yeah, some of you have been there. Another guy said, um, you know, hey, I, I know I'm not in." the." I know I'm not an electrician, but how hard could it be? Um, another dude, another dude, he wants to ask this. He's, he, he asked a woman, um, how long have you been pregnant? Uh, he, he's no longer alive because she wasn't pregnant. And, um, and uh, what about this? Sometimes, sometimes men, sometimes any word you give is going to be your last word. You know, like when your wife says, honey, do these jeans make me look fat? There is no other word. Any response you give is your last word. And uh, lastly, probably the most common uh, phrase you hear a stupid guy say before he's going to do something is, is uh, you know, actually I've got one of those stories myself where, where when I was working at Madison House, we gave this like second grade kid a BMX bike. And so this second grader, he's out there and he's showing his tricks out. And I'm like, dude, I got some sick moves on that bike, dude. And he's like, really? Can you show me? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I get on the bike and I'm like, hey, 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 watch this. That should be one of those things on famous last words. So. Here I am, a grown man on this. BM, you do you remember this on this BMX bike? And I ride up, and we had this this ball pole, you know, that's stuck into a tire, and it's got cement. And I'm like, watch this. And I and I and I jump up, and I was going to try and take my back tire and make it land on the tire, then jump off. But I forgot there was that pole right there, and I smashed into the pole, and I separated my shoulder, and and it was just a, a mess. Uh, anytime you hear a guy say this, hey hey hey, watch this do not pass go, do not collect 200, game over, do not proceed. Famous last words. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got an usher in the back. Uh, Ron, he would love to come and, and put a Bible in your hands. Uh, as I mentioned over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, some serious famous last words. The famous last words of our Savior Jesus as he hung on the cross. And, and what's, uh, what's amazing is while, while hanging on the cross, while, while suffering on the cross, Jesus uttered seven phrases, seven famous last words that should be the most famous last words of, of all. And so we're going to look today at the first one in Luke chapter 23. And uh, we'll start reading in uh, verse 32. If you have one of these Bibles like me, we're going to be on page 884. eighty-four, eight hundred eighty-four. So before I read, would you uh, just join me in prayer? God, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word today. God, I'm, I'm so thankful that we are, have the opportunity, have the chance to hear from you. That this isn't just the, the pastor spotting off an opinion, but God, this is your word speaking to us. God, I pray that you would help us to, to lean in now. That you would, would, would give us understanding. That God, you would help us to put the distractions out of our minds. Because God, you desperately want to speak to us today. God, I know that. God, I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would speak to every one of us, God. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter twenty-three, starting in verse thirty-two. And it says this two others who were criminals, criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminal criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And let's just pause for a second right there. Let's, let's pause for a second right there. Maybe you've been in church a long time. Maybe you haven't been in church uh, very long, but let's just kind of come and, and do a brief five-minute reminder of, of how we got to this point, of how we got to the point where Jesus is now being hung on a cross. The Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so we know the story starts out with, with God loving us, and because he loved us, he gave his son who was born of a virgin. He was born without a sin nature, which means that Jesus lived a, a perfect and a sinless life. He, he completely filled the will of God that God had for him and his life, something that none of us could ever come close to doing. And as you study the life of Jesus, as we've done the past couple of, uh, past eight weeks or so in the Gospel of Mark, there's, there's something that we see in, in Jesus' life, and it's completely amazing. Because as you look at the life of Jesus, he never, ever does anything wrong. He never does anything wrong. He, he loved everybody with an unconditional kind of love. He loved people that, that we would reject. He loved people that society would say, you're an outcast. You don't belong with us. Those are the people that Jesus went and extended that same love to. He came, he came with this revolutionary message. He came with this with this message that fought against religion. In fact, he told the religious folks of the day, he said, he said you guys don't get it. You guys, you guys don't get it. You preach all this religion. You preach all these rules, but you're missing the whole point. The, Jesus says the point is not to have a bunch of people who are religious, who can obey all the rules. The point is to have people whose hearts follow God, whose hearts are in line with, with him. And he's saying, you, 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 you religious folks, it's not about the rules, it's about the hearts. And when, when we make it about the rules, what we become is we become hypocrites. And so his message, he, he preaches this message, and it's all about grace. It's all about repentance. It's all about believing in him for our standing with God. It's not about religious rules. In fact, he said, he said, I came not to preach the law. I mean, I didn't come to explain more rules to you. I came to fulfill the law. And so as we studied his life, we saw that Jesus, he lived and he did all sorts of miracles in his lifetime. People would come and, and, and they, if they were blind, he would touch their eyes and they would be able to, to see. People would come and if they were deaf, he would touch their ears and then they would be able to hear. Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus did all sorts of miracles that we've learned and we've studied through some of these over the past couple of weeks. He loved everybody that he came in contact with. Yet, even though, even though Jesus did everything right, even though Jesus was living this perfect life, he was betrayed by one of his own. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples, a guy by the name of Judas, and he was taken for a for a mock trial. And, and, and even though he did nothing wrong, and even though Pilate, who was the guy in charge, looked and heard all the evidence and said, I do not find no fault in him. This man has done nothing wrong. Even though he had done nothing wrong, he was falsely accused. He was falsely tried, and he was falsely condemned to death. Even though he was the creator, he was Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with us. Even though he was the son of God, we tortured him. We tortured him. The, the, the soldiers, they stripped off his clothes, and they beat him over and over again with a, with a whip that had essentially nails at the end of the whip. And every time they whipped him, they, they, they ripped the skin off of his back. They, they, took a, they took a crown of thorns, and they pushed it in on his head, and they pushed it down into his scalp. They, they, they took a, a scepter, a, a which is kind of like a, a king's stick. And they, they, they gave him the, the scepter as a mockery. And then they took that scepter and they beat him over the head with it. The, the Roman soldiers, they were known for wearing these, these huge rings, kind of like Super Bowl rings, just these huge monstrosities. And, and, and they blindfolded Jesus. And then the soldiers took turns punching him. And they said, Jesus, prophesy, who, which of us hit you? Which one of us hit you, Jesus and and they, they they spit on him, and they they mocked him, and Jesus, through all of this, he is fighting just to remain conscious, yet they forced him to carry his heavy wooden cross to the place of crucifixion and While he was there, they took they took nails and they they drove them into his hands, and they took nails, and they they drove them into his feet, and they suspended him in the air between the earth below, and heaven above. And what's amazing is while all of this is happening, while all of this torture is happening, not once does Jesus begin to retaliate. Not once did he begin to speak ill towards his torturers. There's no record, actually, of him actually saying anything during any of this time. Jesus suffered. And at this point, he's hanging on the cross, his lips begin to move. Now, if I'm there at that point and I see his lips begin to move, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to want to listen really closely. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? I mean, I mean, you think, well, of course he's going to curse his abusers. He's going to start spewing hate for what they've done. Or or maybe, maybe instead of that, maybe Jesus is going to call for healing and say, hey, God, God, my Father, come and heal me now. Come and, come and heal me now. But Jesus does neither one of those things. This suffering Savior, in, in the midst of, of this enormous pain and suffering, he, he issued his first famous last words. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Famous last words. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. There's a few things that we have to understand about these famous last words. Few things that they teach us that we've got to come into an understanding. The first thing that these words teach us is they teach us that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Jesus fulfilled prophecies. In fact, this is what makes Jesus so significant. It's because he perfectly fulfilled all the prophecies that the Old Testament had written about the Messiah, about the Son of God, about the Savior. In fact, there's, there's a guy by the name of Josh McDowell. Some of you have heard of him. Josh McDowell uh, was an agnostic. And while he was in college, he had this brilliant idea. He said, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to find all the historical evidence that, against Christianity so I can disprove Christianity once and for all. And so he starts this research and starts finding all the historical evidence. And actually what he found, that all the historical evidence actually proves Christianity to be right. And so he then became a Christian after looking at all the historical evidence of Christianity. And while he was doing doing all of this research, uh, Josh McDowell found that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. And And so imagine this. 700 years before what's happening right now. 700 years before Jesus is hung on a cross. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was writing about the Messiah. And he wrote in Isaiah chapter 53. He said, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That word intercession is kind of a big fancy word that means he prayed. He prayed for the transgressors, he prayed for his offenders. And what's amazing is here's Jesus on this cross, and we're thinking, what's his first words going to be? And his first words are exactly that. He is praying for those people who have tortured him. He is fulfilling the prophecy that was written 700 years before this. That's amazing. That's not just by chance. That's amazing. Second thing that these famous last words teach us is Jesus modeled for us the importance of prayer. Jesus becomes the model of how important prayer is. I mean, Jesus was a person of of prayer throughout his lifetime, throughout his ministry. We see Jesus doing this on a regular basis. He leaves the crowds. He leaves the, leaves the, the disciples aside and he gets away by himself. To spend time alone between him and his Father. To spend time in prayer and in communication and communion with God the Father. And now, this is amazing, is as his ministry is coming to a close, even as his life is coming to a close, what's he doing? He's praying. He's praying. His life is hours from being over, and he is praying. And notice notice who it is that he's praying for. He's praying for the most unlikely of people. He's praying for his enemies. He's praying for for the people that are just tortured. I mean, this is amazing in that fact. I mean, this is not who I would expect him to be praying for. I mean, if I'm thinking of who Jesus is going to be praying for, I'm not thinking he's praying for the people that have just tortured him and treated him just like that. But think about this. Think about this. I mean, his enemies are probably furthest people from God. His enemies are probably the furthest people that would ever come into the kingdom of God. But you've got to think about this. A few months after this happens, uh, in, in, in the book of Acts, the story picks up where the gospel leaves off. And Jesus comes back to life, and he spends, spends a few weeks f- further teaching his disciples. And after that, he, he's, he's taken up into heaven, and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. So he goes up to heaven to prepare a place for us, and he, he says to his disciples, I'm going to send you guys back out on mission to know Christ, and to make Christ known, and you're going to go out and do this. And, and, and it starts out where, where there's this called, this thing called the Day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples, fills the apostles. And, and Peter, who was kind of the, the leader of the church, the leader of the apostles at that day, he preaches a message on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people come and and get saved and come to know God, come to know God through Jesus Christ that day. 3,000 people through the preaching of Peter. We don't know this for sure, but can you imagine with me that just perhaps, perhaps some of those 3,000 people that were, just came into a relationship with God, do you think perhaps some of those 3,000 people Possibly were the same people who had tortured and beaten Jesus just a few weeks earlier? Do you think just perhaps that, that some of these people now have heard the message and have now surrendered their life to God, to the kingdom of God? I mean, I mean, what would have been the result of that? It would have been the result from, from God's prayer, from Jesus' prayer for them on the cross, praying for his enemies. Jesus could no longer heal by laying his hands on people because his hands were nailed to the cross. Jesus could no longer move from place to place to, to heal people and to, to preach to people. Because his feet were nailed to that cross. He could no longer preach a life-changing message to the crowd because the crowds were gone. And what Jesus did is what every one of us have the opportunity to do. And that's to pray. That is to pray. To pray. The third thing that these famous last words teach us is, is they teach us, actually Jesus reveals to us through them what our greatest need is. They reveal mankind's greatest need. See, what's interesting to me is, is, is what Jesus didn't pray for. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Jesus, you've suffered all this. Shouldn't you pray for healing? I mean, shouldn't you pray, God, God heal me, God, heal me, God. Shouldn't you be praying for, for healing? You think about some of the other prayers maybe that you ever turn on the TV and watch any of the TV preachers and, you know, uh, the, bless him, God, bless him, God. I mean, you think, shouldn't he be praying for something that sounds really righteous and holy and all these things right now? I mean, don't get me wrong. Those prayers are important. It's important for us to pray for healing. It's important for us to pray for, for blessing. It's important for us to pray for this and for that. But, 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 but we need to understand what Jesus is praying for because he's revealing our greatest need. He's praying for the forgiveness of sins. He's praying for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to heal everybody. He didn't come to bless us. He came to forgive us of our sins. And that's, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing at this moment. He's on the cross. He's shedding his life. He's giving his life so we can be forgiven. So our sins can be erased. And while he is suffering through this, he's praying. He's praying for our greatest need, forgiveness of sin. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 26, the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he instituted something called uh, the Lord's Supper that we also call communion. And, and, and what he did is he, is he took the bread and he broke the bread and he said, this bread, it represents my body being broken for you. It represents what's going to happen to me on the cross. All the suffering that I'm going to have to do. And then he took the cup and and the juice. And, And this is what it says in verse 27. He says, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this represents my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. He says, my blood, my blood will be poured out For the forgiveness of sins. See, this is exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. His blood that has been shed. His blood that is being shed. Even in that moment, this is what it's for. For the forgiveness of sin. And even in that moment on the cross, he is praying that we would understand what our greatest need is. Your greatest need isn't healing. Your greatest need isn't blessing. Your greatest need is forgiveness of sin. To come into a relationship with God. Jesus revealing our greatest need, the forgiveness of sin. And notice notice what he says. He says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." This is huge. This is huge. He's saying ignorance does not equal innocence. Ignorance does not equal innocence. I mean, I mean these these soldiers, these guys that have beat him and tortured him, they 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 didn't know they needed for, for, forgiveness, but they still did. They didn't know it. They had no clue. But Jesus is still praying for them, even in their ignorance, because even in our ignorance, we are not innocent. And you might say, well, I'm not a horrible person. You know, I'm not a really bad person. And Jesus would still say, ignorance does not mean innocence. So Jesus begins to pray his first famous last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they teach us a few things. They teach us that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. This teaches us that Jesus uh, modeled the importance of prayer. And it also teaches us what mankind's greatest need is, the forgiveness of sins. But the question is, I mean, I get this. I get this idea of what Jesus was praying back then. But what does it have to do with you and I here and right now? How does this affect your life and my life? But you see, what, what, what's sad for me it, what's sad for me is as I've, I've, I've been a leader, as I've been able to observe life, what's sad to me is, is oftentimes the people that we care the most about are often the ones that are most frustrated with us, or we're the most frustrated with them. I mean, have you, have you noticed this in life? The people that you care the most about oftentimes are the people that are most frustrated with you, or you're the most frustrated with them. And as I've been able to step into church leadership for the past 10 years or so, um, what's, what's sad and, and what's really sad to me is I've been amazed at how many broken and damaged relationships there are within the Christian community. Within people who proclaim to, to love and obey God, how many broken relationships there are all around us. I mean, the, the relationships that should be the best are oftentimes the ones that are at their worst. And so we do, because of relationships, we experience these, these, this pain, these, these hurt. We have these deep wounds that have been afflicted onto us from people that we love, from people that are supposed to care for us, from people that are supposed to have our best interest at heart. And maybe, maybe you say, well, I can't identify with all of that pain, with all of that hurt. But I tell you what, there are people around you in our community. There are people in your workplace. There are neighbors around you who are suffering through this horrible pain and hurt and, and animosity that's going on right around them and right around you. I mean, marriage, marriage often includes such tremendous pain. I mean, there's, there's some things that maybe our spouses have done to us or have, have said to us, and they, they've, they've hurt us deeply. And there's, this, there's this, this horrible pain inside of our heart when it comes to our marriages. And, and what happens is you end up having a husband and a wife who are no, no longer experience any intimacy. There's no longer much of a connection. It's kind of like they're roommates instead of being husband and wife. If there's been abuse in your past, You know that there's this this hatred in your soul that rages on and on, and it can come out of nowhere. People who are supposed to love and protect you that have done horrible, ungodly things to you. People that have said horrible and ungodly things to you. Things like, I wish you were never born. And on and on and on. Man, the pain that so many children experience with their parents' marriages breaking up. abusive fathers. Abusive mothers, neglectful fathers, neglectful mothers. Then you throw a little bit of alcohol into the home. You throw a little bit of of drug addiction into the home. You throw a little bit of, of, of sex addiction in the home. and Then you've got a bigger mess than anything you could ever imagine. And here we have horrible, ungodly things that happen to innocent children that are suffering through all of what their parents are putting them through. Then there are our siblings, brothers and sisters. There are fathers and daughters, husbands and wives and and relationships who are on flesh and blood that they have not spoken to each other for for years. And then we look at the church and we've got people in the church, people walking around with with these huge scars, these huge wounds because of the church and because of people in the church. I mean, people whom the church is supposed to love, but instead the church, specifically people within the church, they do and say incredibly ungodly things, unscriptural things, and they cause so much damage, and they leave a trail of broken people in their background. So that results in people just having this, this, this bitterness and this hatred toward the church, which is supposed to be the bride of Christ, which is supposed to love people, be Jesus' hands and feet. How do you know if you've been hurt? How do you know if you carry this kind of hurt inside of you? It's kind of like when you are having a conversation, but there is really two conversations going on. Maybe I am the only one that does this. Where you are having the conversation, you are saying everything is fine, but inside in your mind, you are saying, "No, you are an idiot. You are a fool. You are a you are a you are a, re- a, a lousy, no good, pathetic piece of garbage. I cannot stand you." Yeah, the first conversation is, "Oh, everything's good. I am good," but in your mind, you are giving them every piece of your mind and letting them have it now. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's just me. Does anybody, does anybody like stand in front of the mirror and have that conversation in front of the mirror like you're pretending you're talking to them? Or maybe you're driving your car and you're, 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 you know, you're given a piece of your mind. You know, they say this and you respond and, and say, no, you're wrong. And they say something else and then you just let go. Maybe that's just me. I probably need counseling. I, I don't know. I, I, I do that sometimes. I stand in front of the mirror and I get it off my chest and I pretend that they're there. That's just me. See, these deep wounds, though, if we leave them unresolved, unsolved, they lead to bitterness. They lead to hatred. And sometimes that's there even without our knowledge. There's a, there's a great story about a guy by the name of Leonardo da Vinci. Anybody heard of Leonardo da Vinci? Probably one of the greatest artists of all time, one of the greatest thinkers of all time. Just before he began his work on The Last Supper, which is one of the famous paintings, he had a a huge fight with another painter, with another artist. And and they got this huge, horrible uh, squabble over who knows what it was. And Leonardo da Vinci was so angry and bitter that he was determined that he was going to paint the face of his enemy in the face of Judas, the, the betrayer of Jesus. And he thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'll paint his face in in the face of Judas so that way throughout all time and all history, they attribute this man's face with the betrayer, with the guy that I have such animosity towards. So, of course, then he paints Judas' face first, paints his guy on there so everybody could recognize his face. When it came time for Leonardo to paint the face of Christ, he couldn't do it. He couldn't make any progress on the face of Jesus himself. Something seemed to be holding him back. Something that he was baffled by because his best efforts were frustrated by whatever it was that was holding him back. So he spent some time trying to figure out what's, what's holding him, what's, what's the cause of this. And then he finally realized the thing that was holding him back was because he had painted the face of his enemy in Judas. So, What he had to do is he had to blot out the face of Judas. He had to blot out the face of Jesus and begin new on the face of Jesus. And once he had blotted out the face of Judas, he was able then to finish the painting and paint the face of Christ. See, we cannot, we cannot at one time, we cannot be painting the the features of Christ into our own lives, yet painting another face with the colors of, of hatred and bitterness to our souls. So what do we do? I mean, what do we do if we've experienced this kind of hurt? What do we do if we experience this kind of violation where we've been hurt and wounded so deeply and, and we don't know what to do? How do we respond through that? What are we supposed to, how, how, do, how, do we, how do we live? I would say we do what Jesus did. When we've been hurt, we are to pray just as Jesus prayed Looking at Jesus' first famous words, there's a couple things that we can take away on how we are actually supposed to live a life in the midst of bitterness and hurt and anger and pain. First thing is when we've been hurt, first thing Jesus teaches us to do is to pray for those who hurt you. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And just a side note, when we say we're supposed to pray for them, we're supposed to pray good things, all right? You know, pray good things for those, not bad things. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus was teaching, and in verse 28, Luke 6, 28, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Did you hear that? Pray for those who abuse you. Looking back at the story of Jesus, who were the people that abused him? The soldiers. And what did Jesus do for them? He prayed for them immediately. Now, if you're like me, and someone is mistreating me, man, i I got lots of great prayers for them. You know, God, God, sick them. God, get them. God, get them. God, make them grow, uh, make them get hemorrhoids, you know, in their ears. Just something horrible, you know. God, just just get them. Just just make them suffer. You know, and and, and when people have wronged me, uh, what I want to do is I want to elevate myself above them. Oh, I would never do something like they've done. I would never stoop to the level that they have done. Or, or we say, you know, I've got every right to be bitter because they're the ones that did it to me. And we begin to hold these, these things like we're, we're a little bit greater than we really think we are. Sometimes, sometimes we do this. We say, well, I'll do the spiritual thing. And I'll, I'll forgive them. But I will never forget. I will never forget what they've done to me. We may write them off. We may push them out. Close them out of our circle. And why do we do this? Because they've hurt us. Because they've ticked us off. And, and we're going to make sure they know about it. We're going to make sure that they have some sort of repercussion for what they've done to us. There's a story about a guy who got bit by a rabid dog. Got bit, bit by the rabid dog. The dog had rabies. And he could have gone to the doc- doctor right away, but he said, you know, I've just got, you know, I'm not going to go to the doctor right away. So he waits a little while, and then he goes to the do- doctor. The doctor looks at him and says, man, I'm so sorry. If you would have come to me right away, I, I could have saved you but you waited too long. I'm sorry, man, you're going to die. The guy freaks out, starts just, you know, gets emotional. We would anticipate that. Finally starts coming to his senses. And he gets out a a piece of paper and starts writing down a list of names. The doctor's like, man, you know, uh, I see you're writing some names. Are you writing people that you want to connect with? Are you writing with people that you want to give your possessions to? And uh, the guy says, the guy says, uh, No, no, no. Uh, These are the people I hate. I've got rabies. These are people I'm going to go and bite. That's the way a lot of us live today, isn't it? We're wounded. We're angry. We're bitter. We're full of unforgiveness. And our heart begins to grow harder and harder and harder. Jesus was born in this environment that was known for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And it was a society built on revenge. Yet the whole time you see Jesus, he is in complete control. He never once spoke a word of, of retaliation. Never once did he act in a way to get back to them. Instead, what did he do? the same thing that God wants us to do. He prayed. He prayed, Father, forgive them but they don't know what they're doing. Those of you who have had relationships that are important to you, and and important to God, yet they've been severed for years. Sure, sure, someone did something to you that was wrong. Sure, someone violated you. So someone, sure, someone hurt you. Sure, they deserve punishment. But you know what God does? God calls us to a higher standard. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Something that I've come to learn from my own time in praying for my enemies is when I pray for others, when I pray for others, that may or may, my, my prayers may or may not change them, but it always changes me. My prayer may or may not have an effect on them, but it always changes me. That's why Jesus said in Matthew five forty three and 44, he said, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I and mean, that's easy. That's easy to do. But Jesus said this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It begins to change us. Change our view, the way we we handle things, the way we view things. Second thing that we learn from this scripture, on how do we live with this kind of hurt and pain, is Jesus' prayer teaches us to model that we should pray for restoration. We should pray for restoration with that person. Jesus' prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Father, forgive them. I want them to be right with you. He's saying, I want them to be in a right relationship with you, God. He's praying for restoration between them and God. Now, these Romans, these guys were known for for worshiping the false god of revenge. The Roman culture, we've said, was was known for that kind of revenge culture. But, but the apostle Paul said something huge in Romans chapter 12. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on who? Us. If at all possible, which tells me sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it is not possible. But here God's word says, if at all possible as it depends on us, live peaceably. With all people. I can't control what somebody else does. All I can control is what's in my heart. And I can control that God has called me to do my part. If it's possible, as far as it depends on me, I am to live at peace with everyone. It's possible. If it is possible, the essence is do your part. If it's possible, do your part part. Do what God calls you to do. If there's a broken relationship, do whatever you can to seek restoration with that. If there's a marriage and it's not where it's supposed to be, then here's, here's, what, here's what God's word is saying. He's saying, get off your stinking butt. Go apologize. Go repent. Go seek the, the relationship to be restored. Do whatever it takes apologize forgive repent have some grace that relationship is important and it should not just be discarded because of the hurt because of the pain do something you've got a son or a daughter or brother or sister and you're not in a relationship over them you're not in a relationship with them you've been fighting over something that happened years ago i think the idea is is get out there and do what it takes choose to be righteous not to be right See, we want to choose to be right. We want to do what makes us feel better. Well, they're the ones that have violated me. So my right is to say I'm disowning them. And Jesus would say, I'd call you to be righteous, not right. I'd call you to do what I would do, not necessarily to be concerned with being right. Man, you've got one set of parents. You've got one life to honor them. So, so honor them. Some of you are sitting here and you're, you're getting angry and you're saying, well, well, Pastor, how am I supposed to do this? You know, Pastor, you're saying I'm supposed to, to live in the light of this forgiveness? I'm supposed to do these things? How am I supposed to do this? I have this, this horrible pain and, and hurt inside of me and these wounds. How am I supposed to do this? I think this is a good place to start. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3. He said, He said this, he said, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Here's what he says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also forgive. How do I forgive when when, when I'm hurting? And the other other person doesn't deserve it. The other person hasn't sought to do anything. We do it just like this. We forgive as the Lord forgave us. Let me tell you an ugly fact about myself. (laughs) If you were to pile up all the wrongs that people have done against me, all the ways that people have violated me, I could have a pretty lengthy list. You take that list and you multiply it, that by 100. And it still doesn't come close to the ways that I have violated God. Still doesn't come close to all the ways that I've turned my back and rebelled against God. Not even close. Not even in the same ballpark. When we are at our worst, when we deserve it the least, God's grace and God's forgiveness is at its best. We don't deserve any of the grace and the love that God extends to every one of us. Yet he is so willing to give it to us. In fact, if he didn't give it to us, we would question how good of a loving God he really is. As the Lord has forgiven you, so we must forgive others. This message is not politically correct. The way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus taught, it's not easy it's not fluff, but it's what he's asking us to do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would you pray with me? God, when we start dealing with, with hard things, with wounds, with hurt, hurts that have been put on us, horrible things that have been done to us, God, God, that's so hard. On our, our our world, the way that we have been taught by by society is: we need to seek revenge, we need to to seek, and we need to we need to watch out for ourselves, and we need to do what makes us feel better. But God, your word says so much different. Your word says that we are to love, and to pray, and to forgive, and even as the soldiers brutally terrorized you, and did horrible things to you. Jesus, your concern wasn't their vengeance. Your concern wasn't them getting what they deserved. Your concern was forgiving them. To see them come into a relationship with you. To see them be restored to you. God, this is the way that you tell us to live, but God, it is so hard to do it is so hard for us to do because we have these wounds inside of us these ways that people have violated us in such such horrendous ways god somehow some way would you break through today somehow some way would you help us to begin to forgive Would you help us today as we have this time of of response, of of worship to who you are, of response to your word? God, would you today give us the chance, maybe for the first time, to pray for those people, to pray for those who have violated us and have caused so much damage?